So, welcome to the first edition of a new podcast, which is based around the Isaac Newton Institute. My name's Dan Aspel, I'm part of the staff here, and today, for the inaugural episode, I am speaking to director David Abrahams. Hi. Hi. So, as Dan said, I'm David Abrahams. I've been in this post um, two and a quarter years, so it's nearly half of a five-year sentence. Uh, And um, like Dan, I think it's useful for us to have a chat um, to say a little bit about the Institute, why I'm in this post and what hopefully we can achieve in the future. Absolutely. And I should mention that if on the recording you can hear the sound of uh, conversation and hubbub, that is the uh, SRQ workshop number three currently uh, happening here. So there's a lot going on at the Institute as we speak, literally as we speak. Um, Which we start at the beginning, David. Um, You, as you say, have been in the role for two and a quarter years. Uh, What attracted you to apply for it in the first place? Um, So um, I'm a practising mathematician. I'm actually an applied mathematician. And so I think all of us um, are keen to make sure that we do research. So the question is, um, why do we take on jobs like this? Because it's uh, a lot of hard work and administration. But nevertheless, I think as you get older, you realise that there's a multiplying effect in working with other people. So you can do your own research and write papers, which is very enjoyable. You can work with PhD students and postdocs to multiply the effort of what you're doing. But if you really want to make a difference, then doing something like this job, which enables you to actually influence the research careers and direction of the whole of mathematical sciences is an unbelievable privilege. It's an opportunity which doesn't come along every day. So although I, um, most of the time I'm spending my time just uh, pushing bits of paper around and not doing mathematics, I realise it actually has um, a big effect and I that's that keeps me sane while I'm doing that but um, I believe in the Institute and the Institute is a fantastic place for doing research and as you said we've got lots of people out there um, enjoying the ambience and hopefully uh, getting some brilliant ideas for the time they're here. Absolutely and um, as we say having been in this role for two years what do you think has been a highlight for you of that period so far? Has it flown by? Uh, it has flown by. I knew it would. So um, I, I knew the place pretty well. But obviously, when you come into a, a position like this, you start seeing some of the detail that um, you're oblivious to when you're actually a participant here. I think it's just the sheer sort of highs and lows of the programmes and of the organisation of those programmes, which are the things I'll probably remember thinking about. So um, on a sort of boring matter for most of the the listeners, the first thing I had to do when I came here was to um, get more money to keep the institute going. So that was a high point to... um, get off funding and we got increased funding and for six years so we have stability but I think the the real buzz is going and talking to the program organizers and some of the participants to um, see what they've actually achieved during their time so most of the participants on the programs come for sort of between a month and six months and uh, it's incredibly um life-changing for them. I would say everyone goes away deeply affected by the time here. If they don't, then there's something wrong, and I'm probably doing something wrong. But 
as you say, there's been two very active programmes running recently, and both of them have made some significant breakthroughs. Um, I'm not going to talk about them here because I'm not competent. They're not in my area of mathematics, but but one is uh, the number 44 in the HHH programme and the other is 543 in the <laughs> SRQ programme. So we will be writing up case studies about those breakthroughs. But I okay. think it's um, almost every programme has some fantastic eureka moment or moments and being around for those mm. will be fantastic. We had um, Hales coming and talking about the... Kepler conjecture, which is a 300-year-old com- conjecture. and now, he, Is that the one, I'm a non-mathematician, yeah. which is probably going to be quite obvious to anyone listening, but is that the one which relates to the stacking of spheres? Exactly. So it's the greengrocer's yeah. problem. It's the greengrocer packing problem. Right. So, so again, that's a fantastic story, which even though it's a classical sort of problem, um, the solution of it raised um, incredibly interesting questions. And so if I can if you want me to talk about yeah, yeah, them. And so, yeah. Um, yeah, essentially, as far as I understand it, as someone not in that area, the Kepler conjecture was, is the greengrocer packing for spheres? Um, the, so you're stacking oranges and you're trying yeah. to figure out the most efficient way to do it. So the smallest volume to get the most oranges into your packing. Yeah. So if you imagine a box um, and pack them so so naturally you can stack them into a, a periodic arrangement like a crystal lattice hmm. but it was um, not obvious whether the greengrocer packing was the optimal packing that gets the most into a given volume and whether there's some random way if you just threw them in that would be more efficient you get more of them into a box or there's a different um, periodic arrangements of, of stacking the oranges which would um, which would do a better job we all believed that the Kepler's greengrocer packing was the best one, but for mathematicians, proving it is the important point. It's finding a way to pr- prove that. And it led all the way till um, the end of the 20th century before people could come up with computer-based methods for verifying um, solutions to problems or to, to prove these problems. So the big, the first computer proof um, of a sort of problem of that time was the full colour theorem. Do you, mm, have you, yes. you know that? Yes, I, I so, spoke to Georges Gontier uh, yeah. about it. Yeah. yeah, so if you have a map, it was long known that... In fact, I, I should point out that yeah. people can see that video on yeah. our YouTube channel or on our website as well. Yeah. But please continue. Yeah, yeah so, so this is a sort of typical mathematical problem which is abstracted from a practical problem of colouring maps. How many pens do I need to colour a map so that no... Uh, adjacent country to any other um, is coloured with the same colour and you only need four colours it's been known for a very long time but the proof of that required a lot of effort and that was the first computer proof that came along so they used a computer because it turned out to be a large but finite problem and you could set a computer to crunch through doing that um, yeah, you see, in these particular examples, you have the four-colour theorem, which, as I say, non-mathematicians such as myself can understand yeah. quite easily because it's something I can imagine. And likewise with the Kepler conjecture, yeah. uh, that has a metaphor, if, if you want, attached sure. to it, the greengrocer's metaphor that I can understand as well. But is, I think it's probably fair to say that all of the programmes which uh, are hosted here have breakthroughs of a similar magnitude. They might not be 300 years yeah. old, but of yeah. a similar mathematical magnitude, um, but which perhaps don't have that 
you can't explain it to someone in a minute's time, yeah. can you? Is that, that that's the vast or? majority of those problems. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> they're the exceptions which allow us to somehow get a glimpse of what goes on here. But the majority of programs really um, either don't have something which is as clear cut as that, a big difficulty or a conjecture which is yet to be proved there'll be a number of issues which bring, make it timely to bring a programme to the Newton Institute and, and discuss it. And sometimes, if it's applied mathematics, then um, it's much messier. We need to tackle some physical problem, but we don't have the mathematical machinery for doing that, and that's what we will develop. If it's on the pure side, it may be a sequence of, of steps of saying, well, we've got the machinery for understanding this area of mathematics um, to a certain extent we've got so far, but there's lots of classes of problems which we don't know how to tackle. And this programme for six months will allow all the greatest mathematicians in the world to get together and, and try and see if any of those yield to some new ideas. Uh, yeah. So, and, and I would say that one of the key elements with, of success at this institute is, is bringing different groups together. So we're not trying to come at the problem directly. We come at it by a sort of slight sideways move. So intradisciplinary topics. So you bring two areas, adjacent areas of mathematics together, and one may have some ideas which can bring to bear sort of new results in the other area. And that's often more actually a, a better way of progressing than just finding a brand new way of solving some long outstanding theorem. And that was, you know, Andrew Wiles' result of, of solving or proving Fermat's um, last theorem was a case in point. He understood that there was a relationship between that problem to a completely different area of mathematics. And he then spent a number of years bringing those two subjects together. Mm. And it's, I'll tell you what's really interesting is the, hearing the passion of you describe how this works and how you can bring together varying schools to solve a particular problem in a novel way. Um, you touched on it earlier, but it's interesting that you yourself, I mean, you have a, you have a position at the University of Manchester, don't you? What's your role at the University of So um, my, I'm a research visitor there. So okay. I, I was... I was um, there for nearly 20 years as the Bayer Professor of Applied Mathematics. So, so they, you have that, and yeah. then you have the fact that you are clearly incredibly passionate about mathematics, and yet this role you're in now is a management position. Do you find it frustrating at all that you can't be one of these people who just spends six months working on a problem and living and breathing the mathematics yeah. without, as you say, shuffling papers around a desk? Sure, I feel um, incredibly frustrated when all <laughs> of that activity is going on, and I go upstairs into the, the mezzanine area and people have got their feet on the table, leaning back, um, looking like they've fallen asleep, but they're not. They're deep in thought about um, about some mathematical problem. And um, like them, I carry around the, a range of problems in my head that I'm permanently thinking about, and this other stuff crowds in the way <laughs> and stops me thinking about them. But as I said right at the beginning, that I'm doing that because I believe it actually... Um, makes a difference that my being here can have an influence on other on other fields by making sure that their program runs well and has the right people so in that sense it's it's only five years of my time and if i were not doing that i'd get some other you know um 
yeah, I won't say any expletive here, <laughs> but some other job of a similar administrative type, they, they, that's, that's what comes of being getting older. Mm. You, they tend to stick to you. So, you know, for many years, I've actually um, had to manage my research time with the re- my other time, which is a challenge and something that hopefully retirement will allow me to uh, uh, get that ratio better. But uh, the moment is a buzz. And I think um, I think the Newton Institute is, is an unbelievable experiment, really. And there are other centres like it. The closest is MSRI, the Mathematical Sciences Research Institute in Berkeley. Um, but apart from that, there's not that many other places. And we're thinking on timescales for mathematics of... of you know, 20, 50, 100 years. We're putting markers which will be seen in well into the future rather than the much more incremental level you're working to when you're writing individual research papers. Hmm. And it, it's interesting because the more I discover about the kind of research which uh, happens here, uh, the more I realise how specialised uh, mathematicians yeah. can become. To the outsider, it might seem that if you're a, you're a, you know, a very high-level mathematician, that you would have a very broad understanding of what everybody does. But in many cases, that, that isn't the case. I, I think I'm right in saying. So how yeah. do you find it? Has this broadened your horizon simply being here and overseeing the work which is, which yeah, is going on? Yeah, of course. Uh, it gives... I think any director here has a unique oversight of the subject um, for a very short period uh, you're a sort of custodian of, of this environment to bring in the ve- very best people around the world and you're getting a glimpse of what they're doing but as you say we're very very specialised and I'm not a pure mathematician I'm not a statistician I'm a sort of jobbing applied mathematician so I may be able to cope with that but there are lots of areas of applied mathematics that I'm really beyond my competence level but certainly pure and statistics again they they developed so to such a level that even in people in closely adjacent fields find it very hard to keep up with what each other's doing so yes it's very very narrow and so for refereeing papers and for assessing people for the research excellence framework and other criteria we have for judging the quality of things it's a very difficult exercise um so but that's the way it is you know if a subject develops it's going to become more and more specialized there are a few people in the world who somehow be are able to straddle huge areas but they're very few and far between Mm. so it's really interesting that you take those specialisms and you as you described with having the programs the different researchers on Mm. each program you simply put together people from different groups and to put it crudely, watch the sparks fly as yeah. their methods interact yeah. with one another. Yeah, but 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 they're very carefully sort of managed the yes, proposal I, I, things. I, I've so, made it sound very so, crude. Yeah, so um, and we had our, our, our previous chair of the management committee would often sell the institute to people when he was talking to people, would say, you know, we just put a load of mathematicians in the room, give them lots of coffee and let's <laughs> see what happens. It isn't like that. Um, you have to try and bring the right people together who have the right ways of interacting and the tensioning between the different groups and the different types of people is what makes it successful or not so 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 it's alchemy really it's alchemy but very carefully controlled so we want we need to have the specialists the the specialists in one area if you want to make progress in that area and then you bring in other people who can be actors sort of 
disruptors who are a bit close but not too far away that they can't interact but not too close that they believe the same way of thinking that they have a different way of thinking so the SRQ program here currently has got quantum field theory experts so they're mathematical physicists and we've got the sort of probabilists and people who deal with rough paths and other areas now on paper those look like they're miles apart but there's lots of similarities the the methods they use overlap to some extent but we're just um, taking people who are a bit further away from that intersection area and really seeing what happens when you do that Um, and it's a challenge for them Uh, it's not easy to do it but they persevere and given a six-month program or in this case this was a four-month program there's enough time for gradually that the penny drops and suddenly they understand what the common language is that you have and then progress can be made Mm. okay so we've spoken about all the exciting things Mm. happening here currently and and the sort of past two years and what drove you into applying for this job um so you've got two and three quarters years left of your uh, five-year tenure what do you think that holds what are you excited to be doing for the remainder of your time so i want to make sure the program's continue to be of the very highest quality i mean that's the fundamental is to make sure that we cover the whole of the mathematical sciences we're very very broad here have the ones that are the most pressing in the need of a of a program either because they're stuck on something or because it's a exciting new development or it has an exciting application so you know data science world etc it's important that we have the maths end of data science discussed here um but in regard to the where i want to see my efforts go the first one is to expand the building so we our building is 25 years old and it's a beautiful building as i'm sure you would agree Dan. absolutely it's a, yeah it's a wonderful environment and it's a bit like a wonderland for those visitors who come here they can be like phd students all over again so we have to create that environment but it would we're short of space um we did trial three programs in parallel for a while to see if we could cope with that and we can administratively and we can sort of do it um, financially with a bit bit of squeeze, but we physically can't fit all of the mathematicians in the building. And the scale of activity and with all the other activity we have with workshops and, and other meetings going on, we can't run many things in parallel. So we have grand plans to expand the building, to accommodate. So to go up from just under 60 um, desks for long-term participants to 90 Mm. so that we could run three programs in parallel to have a new 140-seater lecture theatre to have many more discussion rooms and much more milling interaction space so they're the things I want and we have plans for that we just need you know a a few million pounds (laughs) to achieve that so if anyone's listening to the podcast happens to have um a few million pounds in their pocket we would like to talk to them um, <laughs> absolutely so that's that's um one of the my main aims yeah is it's, to, it's a bit of the kepler conjecture can't help with us fitting those mathematicians into the building yes yeah. that would be nice um yeah an optimal packing <laughs> i think physically we can get them in but we wouldn't uh, find it very easy to do much mathematical thinking if we've got them all stacked on top of each other Um, the other thing is that um, the in 2013 
the Newton Institute um, created the Turing Gateway to Mathematics, which is its knowledge exchange arm, putting it crudely. It's essentially trying to get mathematicians engaged with anyone outside mathematics, because mathematics is intrinsically useful, even though a lot of the time we're doing very esoteric things and it's all curiosity-led. Maths always has impact. It always has huge benefits, which people don't realise when they're doing the work. But inevitably, if it's deep and, it, and it's profound, then this, it's saying something about the world we live in. Uh, and so we've been trying to make sure that we can start to maximise those interactions. And this is the impact agenda for, is, is affecting the whole of science. So we're just reflecting what's going on and changing. So we need to face up to the grand challenges, whether it's climate change, ageing population, um, you know, many other issues that we we should be able to offer mathematicians able to deal with that. So we do that through the Turing Gateway and through our own programmes for the more applied programmes. But the Turing Gateway is going to be changing its name to the Newton Gateway from the 1st of January because we want to show that it's more closely aligned with the core activities of the Newton Institute. So it's sometimes people don't know the Turing Gateway is, is related to the Newton Institute. So we want to do that. But I have long-term great plans for that expanding itself as well, because I think it serves the whole UK community uh, and therefore, and internationally as well, increasingly, but it needs to do that on a much bigger scale. And that's my challenge to try and ha- make that happen. Absolutely. Well, David, I think we've covered uh, your life here uh, in a, a snapshot very, very well. Um, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Before I let you go, can I ask you one question which isn't related to mathematics? Sure. Because I know you're a big cycling fan. Yeah. And we've heard the news today that um, Sky is going to stop sponsoring Team Sky. How's that going to go? How do you feel about that? Um, I'm, I'm not devastated about it because I thought it was coming to be honest Dan um, I think that any organisation probably always has a finite time to feel that they maximise their involvement but Sky going in there must never in a million years believe they would have the success that they did I mean it's been unbelievably remarkable so maybe they're getting out now while while, the, while they're you know, on a high. While they're on a high, exactly. I shouldn't use that phrase around cycling. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, where, that, where that goes for British cycling, I don't know. It may be f- difficult for them to find a new sponsor because, as you say, cycling is tainted, I think unfairly. Mm. Um, but I think it's the most exciting, exhilarating um, sport that there is. But it's gladiatorial, and I think the poor cyclists um, are treated just as badly as they were when the tour was created back in the the early parts of the um, the 20th century and um, how that can change and and make them not destroy their bodies in the process is something that I would like to see Um, but I suspect another sponsor will come along whether they'll have the same resource and whether they will want to change so that um, the team replacement for Sky is is seen as less of a sort of juggernaut by all the other teams and by the French, etc. So so improve the image. Mm. Um, I think they will consider that. But hopefully Dave Brailsford and and his team will continue to to do what they have done because it's just been brilliant for 
British cycling, but also um, British health and fitness, because I think it's got so many people back on their bikes. So it, it has it has to be a good thing. Okay, but, absolutely, yeah. Uh, but Dan, I realise we we haven't answered the the question about the three hundred year old year old Kepler conjecture and what oh, happened okay. here. Yeah. But no, maybe we should save that for another co- podcast, should we? <laughs> well, it's a big enough topic. It'd be a pleasure. Yeah, we'll do that. Super. All right. Well, thanks again for your time, Dave. Well, it's a pleasure. Okay. And thanks, and I hope uh, any listener um, will be interested in seeing what else you come up with. Um, I certainly will. Yes, um, thank you very much. Absolutely. Okay. And uh, stay tuned. We will be putting these podcasts up regularly. We're going to be speaking to uh, programme participants and other visitors to the Institute. So hopefully there should be plenty of content in the uh, months and years ahead. Cheers. Great. Thank you.